Around the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. With easy to use navigation and a simple registration process, placing a bet, depositing, and withdrawing your winnings has never been easier. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined, as always, remotely, uh, late on a Thursday night, by co-host Joe Wolfund. For the last time, for a while, by for Joe Wolfund. For a while. But hey, yes. I mean, this is, a, this is a good note for us to, I was going to say for us to end on, but just to yeah. hit pause on, like this will, this is what we will leave our listeners with for the next seven weeks uh wrapping up a pretty eventful trade deadline so seems like a fitting place to uh for me at least to to press pause and take a break i'm freaking exhausted uh how you doing i'm uh, i'm hanging in there we had a very eventful deadline week leading up to trade deadline day and it made me wonder whether the actual day itself would end up being somewhat of a flop because in an average year something like the Powell and Covington to the Clippers deal, um, the Sabonis Halliburton deal, like those are the type of deals that in an average year are headliners of deadline day, right? They might not be the biggest trades of the season as a whole, but in terms of deadline day, those are usually are like headliner type moves. So the fact that those got out of the way early in the week made me think, yeah, deadline day might be a bit of a dud. Doubt we'll actually see Harden get moved. It'll probably be more minor deals. And lo and behold, not only did the James Harden for Ben Simmons blockbuster finally go down, Kristaps Porzingis got traded. There were a number of other interesting deals, but obviously those are the big two. And those are the two we're going to spend the majority of the time on in today's episode. We have to begin, obviously, with the merciful end of the Ben Simmons saga in Philadelphia. Seven months, almost eight months after the passed up layup heard around the world, Ben Simmons finally gets moved to Brooklyn for James Harden, Paul Millsap, also headed to Philly and uh, on their way to Brooklyn with Ben Simmons are Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, a 2022 first round pick that can be deferred to 2023 and a 2027 first round pick that is top eight protected uh, and also top eight protected in 2028 before it gets converted to two second rounders and $2 million in cash in 2029. It is the second time in NBA history that a player averaging 20 plus points and 10 plus assists are traded mid-season. The first time was James Harden a year ago. <laughs> Going from Houston to Brooklyn. My favorite agent of chaos, Wolfon. Struck again. Let's talk about it. You wrote about the net side of it. I wrote about the Sixers side of it, but we're both well-versed and capable of speaking on both sides of it now. Hit me. Where do you want to start? Uh, that's a good question. Where should we start? I mean, probably the, the Harden and Bede fit is like the most interesting side of this, right? Like there's a lot there to unpack. Daryl Morey has been chasing this guy ever since he got to Philadelphia. And I, 
I don't know, man. I think the big unknown here is how much of James Harden's play this season was or has been the result of this nagging hamstring injury. How much of it has been just like general disinterest? How much of it has it has been him, like you would say, creating leverage through chaos and literally just dogging it, tanking his own value the next season because he was trying to force the team's hand and get himself to Philly. Like that's, and I feel like that answer will actually probably come in pretty short order. He's been sitting out all these games under the pretense of rehabbing the hamstring injury or like dealing with soreness in the hamstring. And, you know, if he gets to Philly and is suddenly like he's suiting up for his first game that he's available to play and looks like James Harden again, then I think that's going to answer a lot of questions. But if Harden is indeed just the the James Harden that we have seen throughout this season, which is, like you've mentioned, has some really high highs where like the, the burst looks most, if not all the way back, and he's getting to the rim and he is hitting that step back jumper and dusting guys at the point of attack. That guy has shown up at points, but he's been very inconsistent. And for the high highs that he has had, he's also had some really low lows. If he is that inconsistent guy, if you know, with 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 a, I guess you would call it a, a sort of mean. By mean, I mean average. Like his average output has come out to being like a lower end all star. That is, I think, where the two of us can meet in the middle on that Agreed. conversation, right? If he's that guy, then. I mean, yes, obviously that's still a huge addition for a Philly team because they, they're they still, you know, in the mix for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference despite getting literally nothing out of Ben Simmons this season. And now they're turning, you know, Seth Curry and Andre Drummond into not only still like an all-star caliber player, but one who addresses a specific set of needs for them in terms of shot creation, in terms of passing, maybe more than anything. And in terms of a guy who can really take a lot of pressure off of Joel Embiid at the offensive end of the floor. So even if this is just, you know, who James Harden is for the rest of the season and looking toward the future, it's a huge addition for Philly. But I think there there is like a, a meaningful difference between that James Harden and what he can do for the Philadelphia 76ers and like the James Harden that we saw essentially butting into the MVP conversation at points last season with Brooklyn, right? Like we're having a different conversation if that's the guy that Philly is getting. So I'm very interested to see that. Uh, I'm interested to see how him and Embiid can make the fit work because I think it's going to require some measure of adaptation and compromise from both guys in terms of their play style. Uh, I'm curious to see if this team can make it work at the defensive end of the floor Again, I mean, you know, Simmons hadn't been playing for them this year. So it's not like you say, well, you've lost Ben Simmons. I mean, he already hadn't been playing, but you're now going to be giving a whole lot of minutes to a, a clear minus defender. Uh, I do think it's important they didn't end up putting Thibel on the table in the deal, which I guess good for Daryl Morey. You know, like he stuck to his guns. He, he held on to Thibel thinking that the, the Nets would cave and the Nets caved. He keeps Thibel, which is important. You know, Danny Green is still there. Like they have some defenders who can uh you know prevent Embiid from having to like clean up everything on his own but he's gonna have to clean up a lot on his own so it's just like I have all these questions uh and we can 
get into them, I guess, one by one. But what's the most interesting element of that fit to you? Before I get into the fit, I want to give you this tidbit of information. And I think this might help us. Well, it might help us surmise how much of James Harden's recent malaise is valid or not. Over a 15-game stretch from Christmas Day through January 25th, James Harden averaged 26.4 points and 11 assists on 59% true shooting and recorded six games of at least 30-plus points and 10-plus assists. That was in a 15-game sample, okay? The last of those 15 games on January 25th, he had 33, 12, and 11 in 38 minutes to cap that month of what looked like, for the most part, James Harden being back. The next day, January 26th, the first reports come out of Maury believing there's at least an outside chance he will land James Harden in the summer. That night, January 26th, Harden hits the injury report with the hamstring tightness. He has obviously not looked the same since and in fact has looked at times like he's almost helping tank the Nets. Is it possible that is all coincidence that that 15-game stretch was the blip on the radar this year and the rest of the season is actually more in line with who James Harden is becoming? And he really did just end up starting to feel the hammy again right around the time the reports came out that Maury believed he was there. It is very possible. I think given James Harden's past, I mean, I said it on the last podcast, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. I am thinking where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I'm not going to say James Harden is still the, you know, the guy who won MVP four years ago, or even the guy he was a year and a half, two years ago. But I think I saw enough in that 15 game, one month stretch that just so happened to coincidentally end around the time these reports started that I think James Harden still has a lot, lot, lot more to give and to show than what he was at his worst this season in Brooklyn. And to your point, even though the lows were at where they were this year, he still probably bottomed out as like a borderline, if not lower end all-star. You insert that guy into a lineup with Joel Embiid at the level he is playing at right now, that team can contend. If Harden's close to his top end, they're 100% contending. And I might pick them to win the East. But I think there was enough there in that stretch, like I said. And there, there's enough coincidence for me to believe that is... So you're saying you're not, you're not picking them to win the East as of now is what you're saying? I do want to see. No, you don't get to see. I'm, no, I'm putting I, you on the spot. Are you picking like them to I win the East? Honestly, it's Box, between baby. them, Milwaukee, or Miami. Yeah. Gun to my head, the theoretical thing I always pull on you. If, it, because I can't see it right now, I'm still going to lean Milwaukee. Like ever, ever, ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. But if if I see what I think, we're going to see Harden. I'll, I'll change that to Philly. I think you've actually raised concerns in the past about like a potential Harden and Bede fit. And I understand it in a lot of ways. I want to be but, clear. Sorry. Concerned isn't the right word. What, what I wanted to highlight is that like with a pairing like this, it's never going to be per. I mean, not never, I guess, but like it's very rarely going to be perfect. Like there's going to be some skill set overlap or there's going to be some stylistic clash something that makes it like a little bit less than the sum of its parts, right? Like rarely is there an instance where you just take two superstar players and it's such like a seamless yin and yang type of fit that um, you get two guys that not only like don't take anything away from each other, but like completely amplify each other. You know what I mean? So it was more that 
the idea of getting Harden next to Embiid sounds really nice, but hey, maybe here are some reasons that it won't actually be quite as profitable as we might think. Not like it's not a good fit, not like putting them together is a bad idea, just there are some things that they might have to work out in order to optimize the pairing and optimize each other. So it's not a a question of like being concerned. It's more just like, here's what could make it like not as effective maybe as it could conceivably be. And here are like the things that they would have to do in order to like actually maximize the potential of the two of them together. I've been making jokes for two years about the fact that the Sixers for the majority of Embiid's time there have lacked the type of initiator who can even like consistently and competently throw Joel Embiid an entry pass. And like, as much as it was a joke, it wasn't really a joke. Like this is, that's actually something they've struggled with for a lot of Embiid's time there. They now have one of the best passers of his generation who can like warp defenses strictly with his playmaking. Like going from the dearth of offensive initiation Embiid has often had around him to James Harden is a monumental upgrade. Another thing too that I like about bringing in a guy like Harden is last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about when a guy comes back from injury or a good player joins team, it almost like uh, helps reset a rotation or like put people in the places they are more suited to more, more suited to. Yes, exactly. Well, I think Harden's arrival is going to put some Sixers and some of Embiid's supporting cast in better suited positions to succeed. Tyrese Maxey, who obviously is already having like a stellar sophomore campaign. I think it's going to suit Tyrese Maxey a lot better to maybe be kind of the tertiary guy on this team, as opposed to the unfair pressure that I think there would have been on him to be like the secondary scorer, creator, whatever on this team. Mm -hmm. Tobias Harris, you know, Lord knows he has had his opportunities in big moments and in the playoffs to come up and hasn't quite done it. But guess what? I like Tobias Harris and the shot creation at his size a lot more when he's like your third or fourth option as opposed to a guy like you desperately need to step up in the big moments. Matisse Thibel, you know, you, don't get me wrong. You still want offensive development from him at, at some point, eventually, like some semblance of it, but his offensive development is a lot less of an issue, you know, if he just continues to be who he is defensively and now you've got James Harden. Like, there are just a lot of ways where I think even the other guys on this roster suddenly just kind of fit into their roles better and can s- settle into roles that they're more suited for now with James Harden in town. And then obviously the one thing we haven't mentioned yet either, you know, some of the concern was, A, is James Harden a flight risk because he can opt out of his contract this summer? And even if he's not a flight risk, do you then end up in a position where you just traded all this stuff for James Harden and now you're stuck giving him $245 million for his twilight years? Harden already opting into his 2022-2023 option means the risk of him leaving this summer like isn't something you have to think about. And you don't have to worry about rushing to overpay for his twilight years this summer because he's already opted in. So look, this is never going to be a zero risk game, obviously, when you're trading for a guy like Harden with some of the baggage that he's bringing to Philadelphia, literally and figuratively. But this is as close what, to what's, me. Well, sorry, what's the literal part? Well, he's you gotta he's gotta take bags with him when he's moving, doesn't he? <laughs> I, was, I thought I thought it was about his weight, but Oh, no, that, that would have been good too. But no, I meant his literal luggage and the figurative baggage that he brings with him to Philly. And so it's never going to be a zero-risk game when you trade for a guy like that. But given all the things that I've, I've mentioned, I think this is as close to a low-risk 
way of acquiring a guy like James Harden in the season he's having as you can get. And so I think for the most, it's a no-brainer if you're Philly. This is what we wanted them to do. Go get a guy to help Joel Embiid while he's playing some of the best big man, some of the best basketball period, regardless of position we've ever seen a guy play. They got him that help. They, they have a shot the next two postseasons now, barring, you know, major injury or something. Yeah, so uh, I think actually the Maxi point is interesting to me because to me, his growth this year has very much been as an on-ball player. And don't get me wrong, like he he can play off ball, like he'll uh, attack off of the catch. Like him him attacking a scrambled defense is like a really good situation for the Sixers to be in. I mean, just with his his first step, his speed off his of the bounce. Like yeah. he, you know, if he's doing the thing where he's kind of getting a head start and sprinting into those catches, like he will be at the rim in the blink of an eye. That's all well and good. But if it's I can see at least in the beginning, maybe some kind of tension like a little bit of an uncomfortable tug of war between him and Harden in terms of the on-ball possessions like Maxi is a guy who like you want driving the ball into the teeth of the defense right he's actually also been really really good as a pull-up shooter this year he's been about as good off off of the dribble as he has been off of the catch so and you know what like I, I remember when Harden first arrived in Brooklyn and I'm not saying like this is going to be the same thing because there's a level of deference when you're talking about you know Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant that I don't know that will necessarily be there when it comes to Tyrese Maxey but he was pretty deferential in those first few games in Brooklyn like sort of eased himself in then those guys got injured and he kind of reverted to being like classic heliocentric Harden but for a while there like he was really making a point of not stepping on anybody's toes so I'm interested to see actually like what that backcourt pairing looks like uh, and I do think, yeah, Maxi has the potential as a guy who is going to have opportunities to attack scrambled defenses a lot. Like, what does that look like for him? Uh, and how can he adapt maybe to more of an off-ball role? It's like the the perpetual thing with Harden, and it's it's just the same at this point of like talking about Russell Westbrook. I'm not comparing him to Westbrook as a player, but it's like every year with these guys, it's like, hey, can like can they start to do some stuff off the ball? Like, can they cut? Can, can they screen maybe like, can they make themselves a little bit more useful as off ball players? We just haven't seen it with Harden ever. So expecting him to do it at this point, I mean, like what, like, are are we really still holding out for this? Like maybe, maybe playing with Joel Embiid, like being in a situation where we talk about deference, right? Like he is going to have to defer to Embiid. Like Embiid is the alpha of this team. Like, even if Harden is better than what he has shown this season, like, Embiid is still the guy. Yep. And so Harden is going to have to adapt to that, right? Like, he is going to have to move a little bit around those Joel post-ups. Like, he is going to have to, like, play the dribble handoff game a little bit and just be, I don't know, like, a more active participant, I guess, in the Joel-centric actions. And, like, yeah, they're going to run a lot of pick and roll, I think, with the two of those guys, but a lot of those pick and rolls are going to sort of turn into like mid post Embiid face-ups. Cause that's the way that he likes to operate. Um, and I think that, yeah, Harden is going to have to be amenable to that. He is going to have to be willing to shoot some catch and shoot threes, man. Like even playing next to Kevin Durant, he's, he's still shooting less than one three pointer, a game off of the catch. Like, you'll see sometimes like he'll get a kickout pass and maybe have an opportunity to let it fly. And he still kind of wants to pull it out and reset the play 
and dance with the ball a bit, you know, and and like he doesn't want I, anyone else to get the assist. <laughs> there's gonna have to be some adaptation there, and then like you think about what pick and rolls with them are gonna look like, and and this is like something we've talked about before, right? Where Harden's used to playing with the rim running center that is going to be a lob threat. Like he's a really good lob passer. He uses the threat of his floater, which has gotten really good, uh, although it hasn't really been going in this season. <laughs> um, but uh, he uses that to kind of disguise the lob. And Embiid's not really that guy, right? Like he very rarely rolls all the way to the rim. He he likes to short roll or he likes to pop. And so I think that maybe there'll need to be some adjustment from Embiid there as well. But also, when have we seen Embiid play with a guard who is just like such a pull-up threat that he's going to force switches. Like either he's going to draw two to the ball or he's going to force switches. Like that is going to make life so much easier, I think, for Embiid. And I guess like Harden hasn't shot the three well this season at all. He's at like 33% from deep. So maybe you see some different defensive coverages there where like they don't necessarily have to switch they're playing more of like a shallow drop or they're going under screens. Like they're not showing, you know, James Harden a ton of respect maybe because his three ball hasn't been dropping. But I just think despite uh, like the imperfection of the pick and roll pairing, I still think there are so many avenues to get MB like easier looks, more profitable touches. And so I, I'm not like too, too concerned about it, but I'm I'm more so just like interested to see what it looks like and how or if those two guys can kind of meet each other in the middle. One other thing I guess I'll say is uh, I do think the Sixers have had issues this year with their stagger patterns where there's like far too many times when Embiid and Maxi are both on the bench. I just think that's not going to be an issue anymore. Like one of Embiid or Maxi or Harden is going to be on the floor at all times. And I think that's that's just going to help a lot. Because some of their bench units have been very rough. Like there was a game against Phoenix, I think, pretty recently, earlier this week maybe, where like it was a close game against a really good team. And they're still rolling lineups out there that are like, you know, Korkmaz, Thibel, Niang, uh, Drummond. Like, you know what I mean? Like where, where there's just like no shot creation really on the floor at all. And that's not going to be an issue for them. Um and then also, uh, between Embiid and Harden, they average 19 free throw attempts per game, which is like there are teams in the league that don't average 19 free throw attempts per game. So that might make them a really annoying team to watch, but it's also going to make them a pretty effective offensive team. So good luck stopping this team. Yeah. Between Embiid and Harden, they obviously have like the type of individual one on one talent that is hard to stop on its own. Um, it's hard to stop them without putting them on the line. You've got Maxi there as like, even if it is off ball more, I think he's a good enough slasher and a smart enough young player to, to make the most of it. Again, if Harris is now kind of like a third, fourth option, and you just got to worry about this guy being kind of a catch and shoot guy, taking advantage of advantages of that. And to be clear, you do still have to worry about that in like a high leverage situation. I've said it time and time again, his shot creation and his size is like a valuable asset to this team. No, sorry. I mean like I was saying the Sixers have to worry about that. In a high leverage situation, <laughs> yes, in a high leverage situation, yeah. I still no, don't I don't. I, mean, I still been, don't trust. He's been, play, he's been but, playing great lately, but he is. And again, if you don't have to rely on it quite as much when James Harden is is coming to town, you know. So there are a lot of reasons why this team is going to be very hard to stop. And yes, defensively, they're they've gotten worse, but 
and Bede's pretty special on that end too. Thibel is obviously, you know, almost as good as it gets as like a, a one-on-one kind of perimeter defender. Like, like even healthy Danny Green, obviously not what he once was, but still, in my opinion, a, a solid perimeter defender and like like i think there are still enough pieces there with Embiid as the anchor where i don't think the defense is going to like fall off a cliff and if the offense is as tough to guard as i think it could be like the the ingredients for contention are still there yeah i actually think green's going to be really important for them just for his because there are going to be times when thibel can't stay on the floor like there are going to be playoff moments where he is just giving them nothing offensively the defense is completely ignoring him and Green is going to have to be the guy they're plugging into those lineups who's giving them actually like some semblance of two-way balance. So I think he's going to be really important. Let me put this to you then. I asked you, I put you on the spot asking you, are, are, you know, is Philly the favorite in the East? Let me put you on the spot with this. What percentage chance would you give it that this just flops? Like what, because like, to me, there is definitely some disaster potential yeah, here, of right? Course. Like, of course. Um, of course, Joel if Harden sort of like, continue, get, like, yeah, like the first of all, you know, potential for personality clash mm-hmm. for Harden just sort of continuing his decline. The opt in, I think, softens it a bit because they get at least one more year where they don't necessarily have to like lock into a five year max after this season, which would have made it like, you know. Uh, a little bit yeah. more tenuous, I would say. So that gives them a bit more runway, but still $47 million option. And then they're going to have to decide whether or not they want to like give him another max deal on top of that. Like it could go bad. So what do you think? What's what's the percentage that you're putting on uh, the disaster potential here? 25%. That's high, man. 25%. Well, I'm, wow. Dude, I'm well aware. It's James Harden and Joel Embiid, man, in Philly. <laughs> Yeah. And and Doc Rivers coaching this team. Like the scariest thing for them might be if they're up 3-1 in a playoff series and the game five potential series clincher is a Tobias Harris jumper. Because that entire combination could be bad for Tobias, the Sixers, and Doc Rivers. But that's I, a long way. Yeah, I, I feel no. bad. I don't want to keep bagging on Toby, man. Because I okay. like he was... Yeah. No, but listen I, I, listen. I really hope that he comes out and has like a great postseason this year. I really so do. So do I. So do I. They're going to run into adversity at some point in the playoffs. Like the East is good. Mm. If say Harden, you know, when they go when they're going gets tough, he gets lost. And in Philly, like they could go sideways very quickly. But I would say if it's going to go bad, I would I would think it goes bad next year. I don't think it'll go bad. Like I think I think Harden has the sense within him. Like he's gonna put his best foot forward for the remainder of this season. I believe and like. We're going to get something close to his best again this year. I, I really believe that. Um, if we don't, then yeah, the disaster potential is there. What, I mean, what about you? I was going to say 20%. I'm surprised you came in higher than than me, but that, that seems about right to me, something in that range, which is, I mean, if it's, you know, 25% disaster potential and 75%, well, I mean, you know, is the rest of the 75% like everything goes swimmingly or is like there's no, some gray just, area like, in there it's obviously like, you know, too, right? you get like an average amount of like fortune injury luck, like all that stuff. Yeah. It can go well and you still don't win because only one team wins and only two make the finals. But for sure with this particular mix of stars market, like everything, the line between like everything going well and things going completely off the rails is very, very thin. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I do think they're going to miss Seth, and I'm not in any way saying that like they shouldn't have put him on the table in order to get this deal over the finish line. Like they should have. They they did the right thing, but I especially because Harden like hasn't been this guy. Like there's there are a lot of those sort of like you know dribble handoff actions like staggered pin downs like things that like a huge part of their offense revolves around getting Seth Curry the ball in advantageous spots whether it's him launching from deep or honestly even just like getting into the mid-range getting into floater range like he's been one of the best three level score maybe not three level scores but like two level scorers in the league yeah. this season like and he's become a better playmaker too yeah so i mean maybe that that can be our pivot point to brooklyn because i think it's like was, it's a really gonna say, you, it's a really you know, good thing for brooklyn that they got him i was gonna uh, say you know where seth curry's shooting is gonna look really good um and, and and playing awesome stars and where his shooting will also complement ben simmons well who should be playing basketball sometime soon because he's joining the uh the nets on a an upcoming road trip, I think. Yeah, I saw that, that he's he's going to be with them on the road trip. Like, still unclear, I guess, when he's right. actually going to take the floor. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a great sign to me. And, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not... I've seen people clowning him and being like, oh, obviously, like, he was just using the mental health thing as a cover, or he was lying, and now he's sort of, like, dropping the act, and suddenly he's ready to play again. But, like, to me the the mental health challenges that he was citing were always connected to the idea of playing in Philadelphia like I, I totally got that as a like mental hurdle that he wasn't able to get past like the idea of going back and playing for that franchise again and especially like the longer it dragged out like the more and more impossible it was going to become psychologically for him to walk back into that situation and play for that team so it doesn't feel like so disingenuous to me that it's like he got traded, which is what he's been asking for a change of scenery. And now he's ready to play again. Like I understand maybe like there are other sort of machinations at work where he was using that potentially to insulate himself from like fines. Right. I've seen some people who are upset because like, you know, they think it's like disrespectful to people who deal with like actual quote unquote, actual like mental health challenges as if like what he's dealing with is invalid. And I don't, I mean, I don't know what Ben Simmons is thinking or what he's going through, but I don't necessarily think that's true. And I don't want to presume that what he has gone through or what he is going through in terms of the psychological hurdles that he has dealt with. Like, I, I don't want to cast that aside. So just like the fact that he's seemingly like ready to join the Nets and maybe take the floor sometime soon to me doesn't like invalidate the reasons that he has cited for not wanting to play this season. Even though I think he helped create the environment that you know led to his struggles him being part of the problem doesn't mean that the mental health stuff was completely invalid the thing i was thinking when the mental health thing first came up was that like everyone was seeing it as like okay he's obviously using this to avoid the fines which might have been the case i don't know or like people seem to be having like a debate about whether it was legitimate or not. And and I think thinking of like mental health issues in sports in a very uh, close-minded way. The reason I thought it actually made sense is because, for example, talking to sports psychologists for athletes is a form of taking care of your mental health. It might not be in the traditional sense that the average person believes, but it is. Yo, Ben Simmons pretty much straight up had the yips last 
summer, spring, whenever the hell it was in the playoffs. Like when I mm-hmm. first saw the mental health stuff, I legitimately thought, yo, this might actually be good for an athlete that very clearly did not have like a a command or a confidence of his own talent at some point last year. And so whether it, you know, it's legitimate or not, I don't know. But I also think it's possible that like, aside from just the can't handle the, uh, the stress of the situation or Philly, I think it's very possible that this guy might have needed some sort of like positive reinforcement <laughs> to refine his con. Like, I think like as much as we clown him for the, the missed layup, heard around the world and yeah i think it's fair he's a professional athlete it's fair to clown him about that and to criticize that it was egregious i also think there might have been more there where if you watch this guy play in the playoffs last year it was more than just a guy you know self-sabotaging or like sabotaging his team or not wanting to be there it was a guy that had very clearly lost like all confidence in his ability to do what he does that's kind of my take there is i think it's possible that you know that might be part of the mental health thing like and I actually do hope that even, you know, whether it's a sports psychologist or whatever, someone can help him, you know, regain whatever confidence he had on the offensive side of the ball. Well, okay. So here's my thing also with that, right? Is maybe what he was struggling with or like the the mental block that he could not get past was specific to Philly. I mean, I, I know that in like Ramona Shelburne's reporting about this, she has cited, you know, things that he has said about wanting a fresh start, wanting to go to a place where like there aren't all these expectations like uh, tied to him being the number one overall pick, like just essentially wanted a clean slate. But he's not exactly going to a low pressure environment, right? Like he is going to a team that was the preseason title favorite that just traded James Harden for him. Like there are still, I I mean, I understand like there's maybe going to be less pressure on him in terms of like, like his place in the pecking order and what that team is going to need from him. And the market as well. And yes, like Nets fans and Philly fans, you know, kind of a different breed, but let's be honest. There are three Brooklyn Nets fans right now. (laughs) Sean Marks, Kevin Durant and Steve Nash. Okay. Those are the only three Nets fans that exist in the world right now. The rest of the roster isn't even a Nets fan. Okay, so media-wise and internally NBA-wise, for organizationally, yes, there there is still tremendous pressure. But walking down the street, maybe, or in the arena, like I, I think it's going to be a little less pressure. Yeah, it's going to be less pressure, but it's still like it's still going to be in a situation where a lot is going to be expected of him, and he is still going to find himself on a big stage, presumably in big moments where like, I'm thinking, okay, like it's, it's the fourth quarter of a playoff game and the opposing team is going to the hack of Ben strategy. And he's going to the free throw line to shoot like high leverage free throws in an opposing arena that is, you know, taunting him mercilessly. Like that can sort of smell the blood in the water and that knows what's happened in the past. Like it's, th- there's gotta be some scars there, right? Like, and some, lingering psychological baggage. And so I'm, you know, going to this, this particular situation, I just think, um, is I, it's to me probably like still going to be a challenge in a lot of ways. And then the other thing is like, just in terms of like the way that he plays basketball, I would love for this to nudge him into the role that I think would serve him best. I think he can be a great fit here because of what he could mean for this team defensively. Uh, because of how good this team is capable of being in transition, 
and his ability to create turnovers is going to get them out on the break a lot more. I think he could be super effective in the open floor with this team and getting them out in the open floor more often. In the half court, I think what you want to see from him is like, you know, people are always like, you need him in the Draymond role. He could be so good in the Draymond role, the Draymond role, the Draymond role. But like, he has never really shown any kind of an appetite to do that, like to screen and to cut and like to play that role consistently. He has fashioned himself a point guard. That's been his conception of who he is as a player. And which is funny because like, then you see him in these like high leverage playoff games and he's kind of just like hanging out in the dunker spot doing nothing. I think you could say, okay, like on those Philly teams, it didn't really make sense for him to be like this, like pick and roll screener because they didn't have the guards to actually make that work. They were just running their offense through and bead anyway. Let's see what he does, you know, next to Kyrie and Durant, but it's like, he has to let go of those ideas of, of who he is as a player, like what he thought he was like, he is not going to be a point guard for this team. Like that is not, what Brooklyn is going to be asking him to do. So on top of like, you know, whatever psychological baggage that he needs to shed, like I think he also needs to uh, sort of reconceptualize his own game. And I'm, I'm very curious to see if he can do that because I I think he can be a great fit. I think he can be super effective for this team, but uh, he's got to be willing to change in order to make that work. He's got the money already. The contract is locked in. He's, you know, out of the place he didn't want to be. You know, the half-court creation issues are mitigated on a team with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Friggin Irving when he plays. As you mentioned, like, he he brings a defensive presence that this team, like, this variation of the Nets has never had, can get them out in transition. He can wreak havoc on the defensive end. Like, there are a lot of reasons why he fits really well here. There's going to be a lot of creation and shooting around him. There are a lot of reasons to believe in him basketball-wise here. And to your point, like, I... In, in terms of whether he will kind of adapt or accept that role, I, I don't see any reason why not. Like, I know you can say the same thing. Well, he already had the contract and the money in Philly, but again, clearly the, the things were different there. Like, it was just not going to work anymore for him there. there. There's really not that excuse in Brooklyn. And I think given that the Nets probably had come to the realization James Harden had one foot, if not two feet out the door already and was going to be gone this summer... Getting Ben Simmons, who I think does really fit this team well and and fits beside Kevin Durant really well, regardless of Kyrie's in the lineup or not. Getting Seth Curry's shooting and improved playmaking and, and ability to you know self-create or obviously be a catch-and-shoot, dead-eye shooter. Playing off those guys. Um, recouping, look, they were never going to recoup anywhere near the draft capital that they gave up to get Harden, yep. but still. You can't operate based on that. And the fact that they were able to add two first rounders and, you know, replenish a little bit of those barren draft capital cupboards, that's well, a they owe too. They owe three. Like, they, they owe three and they got two back. I mean, they also owe three swaps, but, like, those mm. swaps are swaps. They might not right. actually come into effect. So, really, like, if we're talking about just first round picks out the door, they're down to only one. So I do think that matters. And we haven't mentioned Andre Drummond, man. Like I know people are going to laugh. Like he's become a bit of a punchline and like people, you know, I think conceive of him as being like a kind of empty calories player. And I do think there's a little bit of that, especially with his rebounding numbers where it's not entirely reflective of 
his impact on a team's rebounding quality. But like, I think that's a nice get for them. Like they needed an interior presence like that. And I like Nick Claxton. Obviously we know what he brings as a switch defender and he's a solid rim protector as well, but he can get pushed around down there, man. Like they didn't have anybody with legitimate heft at the center position. Like this is, I think Drummond can actually be the guy that they wanted DeAndre Jordan to be for them, you know, minus like the roll gravity and like the, the lob threat, like the pick and roll finishing in general, that that's not going to be Drummond. But defensively, I think he could be a real difference maker for them. Like he actually gives them somebody to match up with the post bruisers of the world. And, and yes, that's- you know what a, a guy in the size of, Andre Drummond is good for when you match up with Joel Embiid and the Sixers in the playoffs. Now, obviously, he's not going to look. He's not going yeah, to come close. Joel, Joel has sunned him on a number. Of I was going to say he's but. not going to come close to neutralizing Joel Embiid. We know it, but what I'm saying is, in general, you need to put a big body on him, even if it really is to get six fouls at, over the course of a playoff game. But no, just to yeah. to not hurt him. You know what I mean when I say rough him up a little. But like to put a body on him. Well, and though, look, having a guy like that is important in a long grinding series against someone like Joel Embiid. They didn't have that. You're you're not going to guard Embiid in single coverage anyway. No. You just no. need somebody to kind of like absorb the first hit yes. and slow him down enough that like the stunts and double teams can can have an effect. And I think Drummond's going to be good for that. I do think, you know, despite the fact that I, I feel like his rebounding totals are a little bit inflated, he's still going to help their defensive rebounding, which they need. They're 24th in defensive rebounding. Like that's a big point of concern for them. And... You know, the thing with Claxton, like, yeah, Claxton's a good switch defender, but they also kind of, like, need to switch with Claxton because it, he's not so effective, like, playing in other styles where he's where he's close to the basket all the time because he's, he's slender, man. Like, he can get shoved out of the way. So, uh, you know, switching with him is, like, leaning into his strengths and mitigating some of his weaknesses, but, like, Drummond gives them a bit of a different look. And if you need him to play up to the level of the screen, like, he's capable of doing that. Um, so I think low key, that's, that's a nice part of the deal for them too. It would be ironic if, uh, the Sixers lack of a backup center now, uh, <laughs> to bite them as it has in the past, um, which is Drummond entirely because he was giving them, right? Andre Drummond's impact might not match his numbers at certain points or his rebounding totals, but Andre Drummond, even being what he is and what he was to the Sixers was actually very important. You know, obviously they still relied on Joel Embiid in ways that are not sustainable if you want to be a contender. But Drummond, you know, saved him a little bit in terms of minutes or even saved the Sixers at times in in terms of surviving some minutes without Embiid. And that guy's out the door. And so, you know, that's something that could pop up. Again, obviously that's not something you consider. Like, it's not like they should have not wanted to put Drummond on the table. Don't yeah. get me wrong. No, you got no. And they, but and it, will, it is something to consider. And, and they'll, going forward. they'll scour the buyout market to find, you know, like if Robin Lopez gets bought out, I feel like he could land in Philly and be totally serviceable, you know, for 10 minutes a game, which is all they need. Um, so I, I think they'll, they'll be fine on that front. But back to Brooklyn, like I just think at, at full strength, and this is, we can talk about, the the question marks with this team because there are a lot this team of, that's now lost 10 in a row by the way yeah they lost their 10th straight tonight to the wizards brooklyn is so interesting right now because like what they could be and what they currently are are like so totally different like there, there's this huge bandwidth in between those two different outcomes and 
at full strength, I think they are in a lot of ways like a better built, more complete, more well-rounded team than they were yesterday. I agree. Uh, better offense, defense balance, like, uh, you know, a little bit more depth. And they're more flexible moving forward, right? Like if if things had kind of like gone south in terms of Harden's productivity, like they weren't going to have a lot of options or a lot of avenues to like get themselves out of that situation. Whereas now it's like Simmons is seven years younger. Uh, he's still under contract for three more years. Like uh, Seth Curry's on a fantastic contract. I think he's got one more year left on his deal. They get the, the two picks back. Like they're a little bit leaner and more flexible. Like there's more... There's just a it little bit more dynamism with the roster yeah. in terms of like the, the the personnel and the finances, right? So it's like they're kind Sensible of in a, for both sides. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, there are all these questions about Simmons and what he's going to look like when he gets back on the floor. Kyrie is eligible unless something changes with the New York City ordinance. Is eligible to play in ten of their last twenty-seven games this season. Okay. Durant is still sidelined with this MCL sprain. And, you know, based on the broadcast, like the the all-star draft, when Ernie asked him about it, didn't seem to want to provide an update, which could mean any number of things, I suppose. But like, who knows when or in what condition he'll be back. Joe Harris is still out with this ankle injury that is like getting sort of like more mysterious and more worrisome by the day. I'm thinking about the full strength version of this team and it's like, okay, this team that has sort of struggled with not having enough spacing or shooting all season is going to have Seth Curry, Patty Mills, Joe Harris, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant, you know? Like you think about an offensive ecosystem that is like conducive to Ben Simmons and his skills. He's going to be playing next to like at least three of those guys at a time and like maybe four in some circumstances. Like that's, that's a shitload of shooting. But we don't know when Harris is coming back and we don't know which games Irving's going to be able to play in. And we don't know when Katie's coming back. And it's like, they're already eighth in the East and sinking fast. Like there's not a lot of time really for them to turn this thing around. Like how much ground are they going to lose before they get back to something resembling being whole again? Like they're, can you can you picture them escaping the play-in at this point? Like, I think it's more likely that they sink to ninth or tenth and have to win two play-in games in a row than it is that they actually get up to sixth at this point. I think they end up in the play-in at this point. At first, when you were asking, I thought you meant, do you see any way they escape the play-in? As in, like, do you see any way they win the play-in and make the playoffs proper? Which, that they will do. Um, but well, like, well, that they should do depending, yeah. depending on the matchup and what the team looks like. Yeah, if, if Durant and Kyrie and Joe Harris are out, and it's uh, Ben Simmons and Seth, Curry, if it's you know the the Sixers leftovers trying to win a couple of playing games, then no, they're not going to get it done. But if Ben Simmons and Kevin Durant are healthy and on the court, and Kyrie, it just remains what it is. He can play in road games, but not home games. Do you pick Brooklyn to beat any of Milwaukee, Miami, or New Look Philly in a best of seven series? No, not right now. Okay. So then we're saying that in that case, we're saying what? Unless something changes with Kyrie's availability, this team's likely not even getting to the conference finals. Yeah. Like, would I be shocked if they did? No, but like, I'm, I'm not predicting hey, that now right. because no, I agree. You know, not only is there all this uncertainty, but it's like, they, I don't know. They got to get a lot of guys acclimated, right? Like they, 
they're working Simmons back in after months away. And I mean, maybe they won't have to fundamentally change like what they do or who they are as a team that much, but working in a, a tough to acclimate player like Ben Simmons, like a player that comes with certain challenges in terms of like building your identity around him while also sort of trying to rebuild his confidence while having, you know, one of your core players that's in and out of the lineup. It's, it's a big challenge. And so that's why like, I'm, I'm kind of starting to think about this as like a lost season for them, which could prove to be no big deal, but also could prove to be a huge deal because KD is 33 and has like, he's sort of increasingly injury riddled, right? Like he he comes back from the Achilles and then he missed half of last season, missed a bunch of time this season. Like it's, it's starting to get concerning for a guy his age and Kyrie is about to become an unrestricted free agent. And I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, it seems like him and KD are still tight. So you would think that he's not going to leave. But then are the like are the Nets going to throw the whole bag at him? Given that he's clearly not going to get the shot, and I mean I don't think this like this New York ordinance is going to be in place forever. But like there was also did you read that Joe Varden piece about Kyrie where he talked to one of Kyrie's aunts at one yeah. point who who was yeah. saying that um, you know his approach to basketball is basically he treats it like. Yeah, just a job, you know, like Which just. A, I feel we knew, and that's fine. Like I'm totally fine with any NBA or taking that approach to their job. Like, of course, I, I am a big fan and proponent of work life balance. And your job does not have to be your life if you don't want it to be. Like that's fine. I literally but- wrote a column last year in support of the fact that Kyrie does just view basketball as a job, and that that's what rankles a lot of people. Right. Because they see it as like, well, you're making all this money. Or if I if I had this opportunity, like, well, you don't. And you're not good enough to have that opportunity. He is. And again, like, before the anti-vax stuff this year and stuff, like, I, I was full. Like, that part I'm fully supportive of. All of this is just to say, I think they made a really good trade. And on paper, this still looks like a formidable team that should be a top flight contender at full strength. But, like, when are we going to see them at full strength? And, like how long is this window really going to last? Like there are, I just have so many questions that I can't, I can't really project a lot of confidence as much as I like the deal for them, uh, you know, just about what they're actually going to be able to do, not just this year, but like into the future. Cause it's like impossible to say, man, so much up in the air. My last thought on this is this, cause we, we have spent a lot of time on this and I still want to talk Porzingis after the break. My last thought on, on this deal and this day and the East is this. I love this trade for both teams. It was a sensible trade for both teams. I think both teams are better today than they were yesterday. And yet, I think it's very possible that in saying all that, Milwaukee and Miami are still the best two teams in the East. Yeah, I think it's a great trade for both teams. It could work out really well for both teams. And that could also just like blow up spectacularly in both teams' faces. But I think... I mean, even if it blows up in Brooklyn's fate, like, what are you going to do? Like, I feel like they had, they had no choice, right? Like they made their bed when they, when they went all in for Harden last year. So, and again, same with the Sixers. If it blows up, like, are you going to fault them for turning a guy that was never wanted to play for them again into James friggin' Harden? Come on. No, but I mean, you could fault them for creating the circumstances that led to him never wanting to play for the franchise again, but that's. We don't have to revisit all that stuff. So yeah, I think we've, we've given uh, enough airtime to this trade. 
Yeah. And speaking of things that can blow up in a team's face, we're going to talk about the Mavs and uh, the Porzingis is straight after the break. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon. The James Harden for Ben Simmons trade was the biggest deal of the day in terms of name recognition, star appeal, all that. But it had gone to the point where we were kind of expecting to shoot a draw. The most stunning trade of the day was the Dallas Mavericks trading Chris Saps Porzingis to the Washington Wizards for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. We both reacted to this deal with what I will call an appropriate level of confusion, disgust, bewilderment. There is not enough I can say about how baffling this trade is from Dallas's perspective. And look, as many people have pointed out, Chris Epsporzingis has missed a lot of time recently with an ailing right knee, the same right knee that he had surgically repaired in the summer. Is it possible that the Mavs know something, realize that they have to get off this contract, which contains $36 million player option two years from now? It's possible, you know, and, and it would make getting rid of his contract a worthwhile endeavor on the whole. But it's also worth noting that when healthy this season, Porzingis was playing his best basketball in years, probably since before he suffered the left knee injury that obviously, you know, basically ended his tenure with the Knicks in 2018. He had regained at least some of the defensive mojo he had lost after tearing his ACL in 2018. And the Mavs already didn't have many ways to meaningfully improve around Luka Doncic today or going forward. And to me, that makes this return even more of an abomination. Dinwiddie, uh, he should provide some like sorely needed secondary creation and, and playmaking behind Doncic or maybe tertiary if you want to say behind Brunson as well. And I think... Yes, his, I will say that. Definitely yeah, behind yeah. Brunson. Yes, and and his, his contract is only fully guaranteed for one more season after this year. But his individual offense has been mostly a train wreck, okay, since coming back from a knee injury of his own that required surgery last season. Since breaking out to average more than 20 points per game two years ago, Dinwiddie's averaged 12.3 points on 43% shooting from two-point range and 31% shooting on five three-point attempts per game. He's also a poor defender, but you know who he's nowhere near as bad of a defender as? Bertans, whose contract has $49 million and three years remaining on it after this season. Perhaps the most ironic and funny thing to me, his shooting has torpedoed this season. Remember how we were talking about on the Mavs this year? Just this team full of guys who are shooting way below their standards? Yeah. They've added Bertans, who is a career 40.7% three-point shooter, shooting 31.9% from deep this season. So I don't know. Maybe the Mavs, are, their hope is to just collect a bunch of guys who can't possibly keep shooting this far below their career standards. I don't know. You can argue like a defensively competent Mavs team can afford to swap some defense for offense. So just from that concept, sure, it's not bad. But like, you can't spin. But they they traded the best tra- offensive player in the deal. So yeah, exactly. what are we talking about? Even if that concept was correct and they did it, you know, with the proper pieces, like this particular trade, you can't spin as anything but a head scratcher. It's just baffling. What are they doing? And by the way, one more thing before I 
cede the mic to you. I think Luka Doncic looked around and realized, wow, I really am going to have to do this myself for the rest of my time in Dallas because the guy went off for 51-9-6 and six tonight in a win over the Clippers, the first Mavs 50-pointer since Dirk in the 2006 playoffs. Uh, after the first quarter, the score was Clippers 28, Doncic 28. So that's all I've got to say about the Mavs and the mess that Doncic finds himself in. I, I just have to assume that Dallas thinks and probably correctly that he, that KP is just never going to be healthy. And I think they must be pretty worried about whatever's going on with his knee right now because there's no other explanation for this. And I got to say, I, I still think they could have found a, a better deal, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong, you know, because maybe... Like you can't trade a guy with it without another team seeing his medicals. Like he's got to pass mm-hmm. a physical. So I think I, I the Wizards maybe saw this as an opportunity to be like, look, we'll take this distressed asset off of your hands, but you got to take these bad contracts off of our hands. And hey, you get Spencer Dinwiddie. Maybe he can be better for you than he was for us. And it's not like you're just dumping him for nothing. If I was Dallas, I would have preferred to just dump him for nothing because I think that the the cap flexibility would have been more valuable to them. Sometimes nothing is better than something, and this is one of those cases. But then I'm thinking also, it's like, okay, immediately after that, they extended Dorian Finney-Smith, right? They're presumably going to try to bring back Jalen Brunson in the offseason. I mean, like that's that's nuking whatever flexibility they would have had anyway. So at that point, it's like, okay, we might as well go and get some players that can help us. Bertans cannot, I, like, I don't think he can help them. He th- This guy is a shooting specialist. Like that is literally his one skill and he's shooting 31% from three this year. Like he does not do anything else. He he's is, gone full Bargnani this year. He's a disastrous defender. Like it's that might be one of the five worst contracts in the league right now. That's why I'm like they must have just really felt like they, like they cannot hold on to Porzingis for another second. Like because nobody would have taken him. Like if they couldn't get off him right now. Like that's the only explanation. That's how bad the Bertans contract is. And I know. And Dinwiddie, you mentioned, I think he's got one guaranteed year for $18 million, and then like the, the year after that is guaranteed for $10 million. You'd hope that he can be better than, he, than he's been for Washington so far, but coming off of the ACL tear and, and being a guy who was like pretty reliant on burst, like he lived at the rim, was like a really strong finisher there, and we just haven't seen any of that, right? Like he, his rim frequency is basically half of what it was in his last healthy season. And he's been a bad scorer at like all three levels this year. He's not shooting it well from three, shooting it terribly from mid-range. He's not finishing well at the rim. And it's not like he makes up for that with like, you know, 3D chess level point guardsmanship. Like he, he's a fine playmaker, but he like telegraphs his passes. He's a little bit stilted as a playmaker. Like they need him to be a scorer. Like he's more of a scoring guard than he is a playmaking guard. And he's not scoring efficiently at all right now. So I don't know, man. Again, like it's since in the games he's played since that knee injury, 12 points per game while shooting 43% from two point range and 31% from three point range. And you're saying they need him to be a scorer. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's like really, yeah. it's really quite rough. 
I'd rather pay Porzingis and not know how healthy or unhealthy he'll be the next two and a half years than pay these bums. I, I don't know if I can disagree. I mean, apart from calling them bums, I'm not going to call, <laughs> not, not call anyone in the NBA a bum, but they are definitely struggling right now and uh, doesn't appear to... I mean, look, Dinwiddie, whatever. He can at least, he can handle the ball and maybe working off of Luka will get him some easier opportunities than what he was getting in Washington. Maybe that'll help. And maybe next year, you know, being another year removed from the surgery, he gets back to looking like himself. It's not totally out of the question to me that he can turn into like a valuable contributor to them in some form or fashion. I don't have a lot of hope for Bertans doing the same, but you know, you mentioned uh, he's been cursed with shooting. Every Mavs shooter has been cursed this year. Maybe the two curses cancel each other out. And he goes back to hitting over 40% of his threes, in which case, even then, I don't know, because they're like, he'll really compromise their defense, which has been a big part of their success this season. I just, that's a big, big head scratcher to me and like really doing Washington a big favor. And again, maybe like, maybe Porzingis just isn't going to be healthy, but if he is, uh, he was having a great season this year. And I I think like Beal, we haven't even talked about Beal. Beal's done for the year. He's got, he's having wrist surgery, so uh, yeah. it's it's not going to matter. I don't think for the Wizards this year. But like, it's going to be wild when Porzingis carries the Wizards past the Nets for the tenth and final play. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, Beal Beal comes back healthy next year, and Porzingis is like reasonably healthy next year. Then, uh, you know, I'm still not going to love them keeping Beal and like paying him the super max and being tethered to that for the next five years, but look, they're in better shape than they were like having those two guys on their books, right? Like they're, they could be a play in team next year, you know? Yeah. I mean, having way, nine if you're, months if you're, to live if you're Washington, having six months to live. <laughs> if you're Washington, like you just made a deal where you got the best player in the deal. You got off of like maybe your two worst contracts. The Mavs threw in a second round pick for good measure. It's like, I don't know. Take these victories where you can, right? Yeah, and this is a franchise that doesn't get a chance to celebrate victories that often. Can you think of a more Wizards-esque duo than if they were to max out Beal in the summer and go forward for the next few <laughs> few years with a Beal-Porzingis big two? Does anything scream Wizards duo more than that? Does anything scream 39 wins as an absolute peak and peak Wizards than that duo? Uh, maybe if John Wall gets bought out, and latches back on with Washington. I think that's my ideal outcome here. Oh, man. Before we sign off here, uh, should we hit on some of the smaller trades? Like maybe one each that that we really liked? Yeah. I mean, I think the one we both liked the most out of taking these big two aside is Derek White to Boston. So why don't you talk about that? Because I really like what Boston did at the deadline. Man, uh, just a great get for them at like not a super steep acquisition cost. I don't understand why the Spurs were cool with this. It's not like this guy was, it's not like he's a pending free agent that you're going to lose him. Like you had him under contract at a pretty reasonable price for his abilities. Like what was the rush here? I think for them, it had to just be, look, we want more minutes for Primo. We want more minutes for Vassal. We want more minutes for Lonnie Walker, I guess. Like, I think probably for them, it was just like, let's play our young guys more. 
And Derek White's not old. He's 27. But I think if they're thinking long, long term, they saw an opportunity to to get some draft capital and they jumped at it uh, and kind of killed two birds with one stone where they get the draft capital and they also open up playing time for the guys that they think are going to be pillars of of the next good Spurs team. So I can kind of see it. I don't love it, but... I really love it for Boston because, you know, they give up Josh Richardson, who'd actually been pretty good for them off of the bench. Like, I I think he's been better this year, certainly, than he was last year in Dallas. But it's a huge upgrade, and that essentially allowed them to then get off of Dennis Schroeder, who they traded for Daniel Tice, who is going to, as a backup center, or now potentially as like a third-string center, because I think maybe this enables them to move Al Horford out of the starting lineup, actually, is just going to be way better than what they were getting from Ennis Cantor. So... Um, that, that series of moves I think works out for them really well, but white is one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. And he's super versatile, right? Like at the point of attack, he is great. He can get over screens. He can stay in front, like really good at just like limiting penetration, just moving his feet and keeping the ball in front of him, like matching up with bigger players, guarding the post, like as a help defender, he can muck shit up coming over from the weak side, really good charge taker. And like, him next to Marcus Smart is like, yeah. that's that's like the best charge-taking duo in the league and probably yeah. the best defensive backcourt in the league right yeah. now. So for a team that is has already climbed up to third in defensive rating and just in general, like I feel like maybe people haven't noticed it's been happening a little bit under the radar, you know, because all the teams ahead of them in the East have been winning games, right? Like the Raptors have been on fire. The Heat have kind of been on fire, like... Also been lights out for a month and a half. So the Celtics have been quietly just like going about their business, steamrolling a lot of teams, honestly. They now have the best point differential in the Eastern Conference. They're still stuck there in seventh, which is maybe why it hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but they've been playing some really good ball. And like I said, they're third in defensive rating and they just got uh, this wonderful defensive guard who is not just a defensive specialist who also Mm -hmm. gives them some ball handling chops is a really good driver who gets to the rim a lot, which is definitely something this offense could use. Uh, he's a solid pick-and-roll playmaker. In the past, he's been a good three-point shooter. He has not been that this season. And that's just like the one area of concern because Boston's had an issue with three-point shooting this year. I think they're 22nd in the league in three-point percentage. So it would be great to see that area of his game rebound. But apart from that, I just think it's a great fit for them and uh, you know to go back to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast about a a player coming in and that allowing you to sort of like rejigger the rotation in a way that makes more sense like Horford's been starting for most of the season next to Rob Williams I wonder if we see them go smart white brown Tatum Williams as their starting five like that's their best five that's their best five-man combination, I think. Yeah. And I think that is a lineup that can wreak some havoc uh, and really trouble some teams in the playoffs. Like, if you're talking about uh, in-season ceilings, like, forget the future, just, I, I don't know, well, I mean, obviously the Sixers and the Nets, but, like, the Celtics have upped that ceiling this year, and I'm not saying they're a contender, but the way they've been playing and then the, making this move as opposed to, you know, a month ago, Robert Williams was reportedly on the table, and it seemed like they might be making some future-minded moves and kind of punting on this season. Now it's like, this is a team that just made a pretty good win-now trade. They picked up 
a guy I really like, an, an underrated offensive player, as you were kind of alluding to there. I think he's a good playmaker. Even if the three-point shooting doesn't come back, he's a really good playmaker, I think, who takes care of the ball and defends his ass off and is going to be in a backcourt with Marcus Smart. Like, it, it's it's a good mix here. And I also do wonder, like, getting him on the fair contract he's on. You know, because there's been talk about, like, Marcus Smart being on the block and them trying to maybe move that contract with soon enough. I think having Derek White in the mix might make it a lot more palatable, palatable to, to move. Yeah. yeah. To, to move smart maybe in the offseason or something. So I just, they've given themselves more options while also getting better in the present. Like it, he fits their team. It's it's a good move. Celtics will be a team to be reckoned with in part because of it. Yeah, and, and they're, like they're, I mean, they didn't just give up Richardson, which is, I mean, maybe the impression that I was giving, right? They also gave up a, a first rounder this year, um, which is top four protected, which obviously, you know, it's not going to land in the top four, I wouldn't think. I mean, I guess with the lottery odds, like if they if they lose in the plan or something, then anything can happen. But I wouldn't expect that. So the Spurs will pick up a first rounder. They also get Romeo Langford, who the Celtics drafted 14th overall a couple of years ago. And it's just been like quite disappointing since then. So I don't think that really hurts for Boston to lose. Uh, I do wonder, I mean, they, they trade Schroeder after this and then their backup point guard situation is now a little sketchy, which might be a reason, I guess, to bring White off the bench. But... I, I would start them and, you know, you stagger and maybe like White can be like the starting two guard and the bench point guard. They do have Peyton Pritchard, uh, who's been so-so this season. Um, but I'd, I'd maybe point to that as like a like one of their, honestly, one of their few weaknesses right now is like that backup point guard spot. Or just their bench in general, I guess, is like pretty underwhelming. But that starting five has a chance to be really, really good. And one that I think, yeah, could be, pretty scary to play against in a playoff series, man, especially with the way Tatum's playing right now. Like he, he struggled to start the season, but he's coming on very strong right now. And you couple that with the defensive upside of this team and and now having added a, a defender like Derek White, I just, man, I, I, I like the makeup of this team. And, uh, and you mentioned, it's not just like a short-term fix, right? He's got three more years left on his contract. So I think he could be there and, and making a big impact for that team for a long time. This also kind of ties in nicely with the question we were asking about whether Brooklyn can actually avoid being in the play-in because you look at the way the Nets have fallen in the standings, the Celtics are one of the teams they're now behind, right? You look at the move the Celtics made today and it's like, unless things go right for Brooklyn really quickly and guys get healthy and available, they're probably not going to leapfrog the Celtics barring something going wrong in Boston. You look at the team Toronto has molded into as they've gotten healthy as the season has gone by, which we can then talk about the move today to get Thad Young, where they gave up zero rotation minutes and essentially, if things go the way they should, agreed to slide 10 to 15 spots in the draft to take on Thad Young's expiring contract. Doesn't really address their shooting or true rim protector needs, but he... It just adds another playmaking power forward to their collection of 12 playmaking power forwards. They added a guy who is still a really good defender who, like you said, another playmaking power forward, a guy that even though, you know, small ball fives maybe aren't what they needed. This is another guy that can play that small ball five role while, you know, being a sneaky good offensive contributor on that. And because of his playmaking, not because of his individual offense. So, you look at, again, the team Toronto has become, they've won eight in a row. They're starting to run away from the Nets now. Like, don't see the Nets 
all of a sudden leapfrogging Toronto unless they catch absolute fire and everyone's available. You start going down the list of teams ahead of them. It's like, who are they catching? So I think this was almost a nice way to bookend this and coming back to that Nets deal because as much as we agree, they obviously made a no-brainer move and their team is more balanced now and all this. Like you still start looking at the East and it's like, that team's probably going to still end up in the play-in and have to win at least one game to just make the playoffs. And if they're the seven or the eight seed, at least one of the two games is going to be at home. Like, so no Kyrie unless things change. It's still a lot of questions there, man. And and the East, the East just got better today and deeper again. If somehow the Nets wound up in a series with the Raptors too, Kyrie just wouldn't be able to play in any yeah. of the games. I know, but seriously, like from a playing perspective, if they're if they're the seven, yeah. he's not gonna he wouldn't be able to play in the seven versus eight, and then okay. Yeah, although they, there ha- there have been rumblings that maybe that is going to get rolled back by yeah, by the time there, April rolls around. I I wouldn't be shocked just based on I don't know, just reading tea leaves, I suppose. Yeah, but that's like in the hands of New York City Council, so the, like who can really predict whether that's going to happen? But uh, yeah, one way or another, I mean, they have some questions to answer. They're going to be one of the more interesting teams to watch. You know, from from the Raptors side of things, like I, I liked them getting Thad. I would have preferred them going out and getting a guard, going out and getting a shooter. Like, I think that's what they needed more. Um, but it seems like the the Rockets weren't giving up Eric Gordon. Like, I'm surprised nobody traded for Eric Gordon, man. I thought I thought the Suns especially uh, were going to end up with him. Like, he would have been perfect for them, but he doesn't go anywhere. So it's really like the one guy that changed hands where I'm like, oh man, the Raptors could have really used that guy is Derek White. And... It seems to me, I'm not going to say they weren't willing to put a first rounder on the table. They did do that. Um, you mentioned they got the Pistons pick in return. So it was more like moving down, you know, 10, 12, 15 spots in the draft rather than giving up their pick outright. But I think they would have put that on the table. Maybe to them, it was more about the term on Derek White's contract. Like that's the way that this front office has kind of operated. Like their MO has been valuing flexibility and they're kind of reluctant to take on deals with that much term on them. So I feel like maybe that's what scared them off, but I would have liked that move for them a whole lot more Uh, as a short-term fix. That's good. He'll help their bench. Um, He'll fit right into their defensive scheme. He gives them more playmaking. He can actually like finish around the basket, which a lot of their bigs can't do. So um, I definitely like it as an addition for them, but it's definitely closer to being a redundancy like it is really like quadrupling down on the type of player that they've already targeted uh rather than addressing their weaknesses which is certainly one way to go about it like it's an interesting question it's like okay well if you can't address your weaknesses in a way that feels satisfactory to you why not just like go all in on this one thing which is like interchangeable like defensively versatile power forward sized guys who can make plays and who can grab offensive rebounds because that's one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And the Raptors have won a ton of games just by getting on the offensive glass. So uh, he'll help them with that as well. You got anything else on your mind, Wolfon, before you sign off for six, six weeks, seven weeks, seven weeks. Um, yeah, no, not really, man. I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I was going to say the break. It's not going to really be a break for me. I'm going to be pretty busy with uh, with dad duties, but uh, I'm excited to see what you do with the show. I'm going to be listening, obviously. 
and this was a this was a good note uh like i mentioned at the beginning for uh for me to go into the break on uh, an exciting trade deadline a stimulating conversation with you about the moves that interested us and i'm definitely though i'm not going to be writing about it or podcasting about it certainly going to be watching with interest to see how these moves play out all right cool so i'll just call you once a week and we'll record the pod until you watch me you record me in secret like we'll just have a phone yeah. conversation about it that uh you'll surreptitiously be recording I think that might uh, lead to some good banter. Anyway, let's let's get to this last fan shout-out while Wolfon is still in the mix uh, for the time being. I was going to add uh, two shout-outs this week because I wanted one of them to be a, a kind of an industry one. And usually when we do those, I want to do one that's like, you know, for more traditional fans. So the industry one I wanted to point out was uh, Samson Folk, who does great, great Raptors-related coverage work for Raptors Republic. He had a tweet a couple of weeks ago where he said the Joe and Joseph podcast is always so good. And so I wanted to make a note uh, thanking Samson for his support of the show and also giving him praise for being a really, really good basketball writer who you will learn from every time you read his work. Yeah. And podcaster and, does a great job hosting uh, the Raptors Republic pod. Absolutely. And then the uh, more traditional fan shout out this week goes out to Josiah Van Wingerden out of Colorado Springs, who I interacted with on Twitter a couple weeks ago, who said uh, he loves the pod and he started listening back in the Will Lude days, but uh, started listening more consistently actually in the bubble restart and has been with us ever since. So Josiah, thank you for supporting the show as long as you have. And uh, thank you again to Samson and the usual call out. Uh, if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, reach out on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey underscore W. You can still reach out to him, even though he won't be recording for a month and a half. Uh, Joe.Wolfond at thescore.com. Joseph.Cacharo at thescore.com. Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram. Let us know how long you've been a fan, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future Wolfond list episodes. For Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.